Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Please follow along with me as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rinda. I believe we have a medical attention in the back. So as we go to the Lord in prayer, let's pray for that situation. And as God continues to uh, sustain them and give guidance to the medical team. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we pray right now for the situation in the back of the room. We thank you for the medical team that's there and our security. Lord, we have much that has been happening this week, and this just seems to be the tip of the iceberg as we as a church family have mourned the loss of a loved one this week. We've heard news of MRIs and heart ablations that weren't going as we might have anticipated this week. And Lord, it's uh, we just... Uh, pause and recognize that you're the sovereign one. In fact, it's fitting in light of the text we're going to look at, that sufferings come, trials are there, and you're in the midst of it, and you're working it all for your glory, and we'll talk about that today. Lord, uh, calm our hearts, help us to focus on your word. Thank you for the sweet epistle that Paul wrote, nestled in the letter, or Peter did in the latter part of the New Testament. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to First Peter, First Peter chapter 1, and if you've just joined us, uh, we have an exam for you uh, that you'll have to fr freshen up on, just joking, but we looked at last week, First Peter 1, the first two verses, which is the greeting. It's typical in letters written in the first century, there's a set format. There is a, a greeting. It's usually the, well, the author to the recipient, hello. Then there's a thanksgiving, which we're going to start to examine this week and next. Then you get into the body, the main content of the letter, and then there's a closing. And that's the case with First Peter. And, and we saw last week in those two verses, we find out who the author is. It's the Apostle Peter. We know who the recipients are. These are believers who are scattered in what is modern Turkey today. <clears throat> and we know they're suffering, which is going to be highlighted constantly throughout the letter. 
And, and we're going to see that. And, and we even get a glimpse of a little bit of what the reason is that Paul, or Peter, I keep saying Paul, Peter is writing. And he, what he's trying to say to them is, hey, I want you to hear this. I, I want you to be encouraged in the midst of the suffering. What you've latched onto, it's true. <laughs> what you've latched onto and you're suffering for, God will honor. And so stay fast. And so there's, there's encouragement, but there's also some exhortation in the midst of this letter as he writes. He gets to verse 3, and we move into the thanksgiving. And again, this is typical in uh, letters of the first century, especially in the New Testament. Thanksgivings are the point, well, every letter in the New Testament, there's a recognition of God. And then you'll see glimpses of the theme of the letter being teased out even at this point. And that's the case here. Peter is going to highlight salvation, and in so doing, he's going to talk about the hope of our salvation. That's going to be verses 3 through 5, as we're going to see. And then he's going to deal with the joy of our salvation, which is 6 through 9. Then the latter part, 10 through 12, we will look at next week. If you're diagramming in the Greek, it's one long sentence. Talk about run-on sentence. It would be a, an English grammar's nightmare, right? Uh, but let's look at this verse 3. It goes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. It's seen throughout the Old and the New Testament. Psalm 69, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, the psalmist states. Blessed be our God and Father is the same greeting that we see that Paul gives in Ephesians 1 and in 2 Corinthians 1. So it's common. Blessed be the God of our Father. And notice this is the Father of our, don't miss the pronoun there, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about Father, when we talk about the Son, just a couple things to note. Father does not indicate that Jesus was an, an offspring of God that, or that Jesus was created. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, that is Christ. And the Word was with God and the Word is God. Fully God is a better rendering there because they're distinct in person, but ontologically they're the same in essence. And so why the reference to father and son through scripture, the relationship between God and Christ? Because God the father relates to the son as a father relates to a son. The father plans and directs, the son responds and obeys. The father cares and provides, the son seeks to honor the Father. And so you see this beautiful relationship that's spelled out in the New Testament. But notice, as Peter is writing to these believers, he says, it's our Lord. That's very significant. In the Roman Empire, there's only one person called Lord. That's Caesar. That's the emperor. In fact, the coins minted by the offspring of Augustus said, I am Caesar Tiberius, for instance. I am the son of the divine Augustus. Nero comes on the scene, who's the emperor at this time, and decides that no longer does he want to be the offspring of a god, he's going to call himself a god. And I am Lord. And so, to say that someone else is your Lord is what? <laughs> Treason. It's not how to win friends and influence people in the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what we see as persecution breaks out because how dare you call this Jesus our Lord. And Peter starts right off, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, that is Jesus Christ. 
to a group who's suffering, it seems a little odd to start that way, I, I, would, I believe. When Paul writes in First and Second Thessalonians, he says, blessed be God, and, and so do I just thank him for you. We don't see that with Peter. He starts right out of the block and he says, hey, blessed be God and Father. And he starts with this praise. Well, Peter should know, right? He should know better. <laughs> it's he who uh, failed to declare the greatness of his Savior when he denied him three times on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter understands the importance of praise, exalting God. Praise keeps things in perspective, doesn't it? The group who is suffering, these believers who are receiving this letter, questioning perhaps their allegiance to the Lord as they're being persecuted, he reminds them of who they serve. This is the one who is blessed. This is our Lord Jesus. It's, it's trying to help them realign, and that's what praise does. Recently, I was at the eye doctor, and she goes, is it better here or here? I said, neither. She kind of looked at me, and she said, well, it's better here or here. I said, neither. She did the third time. She says, I think we've got an issue. I said, yeah, you're right. So they took me in another room, and she goes, well, you have stigmatism, and it's really bad. And I said, well, that would explain it. We went back into the room. Knowing that, she said, Alice, is it better here? I said, oh, yes, that's great. It's putting things in perspective, and that's what praise does. It's so easy, isn't it, to get distracted with all that's happening around us. And Peter says, no, 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 look to the Lord. Look to who he is. And, and that's what praise also does. It reminds us of God's character, his compassion, his love, his power. Psalm 86, oh God, arrogant men attack me. A gang of ruthless men whom you, don't, they don't even respect you. They seek my life. But you, O oh Lord, are a compassionate and merciful God. You are patient and demonstrate great loyal love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. And it's interesting, as Peter's writing, that's exactly where he goes. Because look at the next, or look at verse 3, the latter part of this verse. After he's given this glorious, blessed be the God, he says, by his great, and I love this, mercy. As Peter is writing, again, to these believers who are suffering, is you need to remember who we serve and that he is merciful. It took great mercy for him to, to love us. It took great mercy because why? Our sin is great. Read Ephesians 2, right? The, the judgment we deserved, Christ took upon him. And this is the kind of mercy that is necessary. A mercy that is radical. Mercy that is awesome. Such mercy has brought about a situation that, again, it's so different than our predicament in which we reside. And that leads us to the next point where he says this mercy he gives us into a birth and into a living hope. And that's what it does. It brings us back to life. And the text says he gave us new birth. This is a very active sense. And the English translation doesn't render it as best it should. It's really referring to the father's role in conception. It's he who gives us birth. <laughs> we didn't do this. According to Ephesians 2, we were dead in sin. I've been to a lot of funerals. The corpse does not get out of the casket and say, thank you for coming to my viewing. No. They're dead. 
That's where we were, dead in sin. And, and we, we cannot take credit. Can you imagine, you, you know, your child who's born at the hospital and the, the child starts speaking and saying, hey, I, I'm glad I could help out with conception in the last nine months. Uh, the only thing you helped out the last nine months is increase my wife's love for uh, vinegar. I don't know, right? Uh, grapefruit, I don't know. And, and this new birth that he's given, it, it's into, a, and I love this, living hope. From dead to life, from hopelessness to hope. It's not dead, it's not stagnant. And that's what Peter is highlighting here. He even gives us the means. How did he do it? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Throughout the New Testament, hope is one of the defining marks of the believer. It's a type of hope that allows us to rejoice even when facing great adversity, pain, and sorrow. The word hope in the New Testament is, is not referring to a wishful thinking that the Colts will win the next game, right? It, it has the connotation of confident expectation. Why? Because look what it's rooted in. It's rooted in what Christ has already accomplished. That, that's why we have sincere, genuine, certain hope. It's why we can stand at a graveside of a loved one who knew Christ and in the tears can still rejoice. We mourned the loss of Diane Horn this past week, but we don't mourn without those who have no hope because Diane knew Christ as her Savior and she's in the presence of our Savior this morning. A little jealous, but we'll get there soon. Soon and very soon. It's a hope that it's not rooted in, in my efforts or what my local church can do. It's rooted solely in what Christ has accomplished. And that's why it can be characterized as certain. It's interesting as well in the New Testament, this hope is also tagged with ethical obligation. But we'll get to that as we move through the book of 1 Peter. So we see our salvation is that which has a merciful origin. Second point there in your notes is that it has a hopeful guarantee. The object of the hope is seen in verse 4. That is into an inheritance that's imperishable. Uh, This word speaks of immortality. It's a term often used of, of a foreign army coming in and taking siege to one city. That's not going to happen. Secondly, it says it's undefiled. It's not stained by evil. It's pure. So it's, there's immortality, there's purity, and then notice he says it's unfading. It's beautiful. It, it, it's not going to have wrinkles down the road. Oil overlay is not necessary for this inheritance Right, it's going to keep on going, and he said, "This this inherits the immortality, the the purity, the beauty." And then notice the next line: "It is reserved in heaven for you." In the Greek, it's interesting. The word "kept" or "reserved" is in that what we call perfect tense, which means that action was completed in the past, but it has an ongoing effect. When Jesus cried, it is finished, that was a perfect tense, meaning it was accomplished at the cross, but it has eternal ramifications, ongoing. The same idea here. 
so significant. It says it's been, it, it's, it's identifying this action that took place in the past. It still continues and it's in the future. The passive also tells us that it's God who's doing the reserving, the protecting. We are named, in other words, we're, we're named in the will. It's there and no one is going to change it. Not the Father. And Peter's emphasized, in other words, in the strongest sense here, that our inheritance is kept by God. It's reserved. And so, this inheritance which we have, it's tied to this living hope because of Christ's resurrection and because of God's work, ensuring that it'll take place. And he's not done. Peter then says, our salvation is safeguarded in verse 5. Look what he says. Who by God's power are protected or shielded through faith. Don't miss that. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Salvation, as Peter is using it here, he's talking about that which is at the end. Not the salvation that comes when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, but the salvation that you will have when either Christ calls you home or when Christ returns. It's sure, this deliverance, and it, be, it will be revealed. And the guarantee is, is God being that safeguard. Interesting as well, it's also a military term. It's like placing a garrison around a city. And believers who are undergoing persecution, who feel vulnerable, what a comfort to know that God is the safeguard. He, he's put the shields up, right? It's kind of like those Star Wars movies. They've got the, the force field is up. You're, you're protected. And he promises to do that with the very same power that he rose his son from the dead. Wow. And, and this is our salvation. And as Peter launches into this book, he says, look at the hope we have. By the way, the guarding is a present tense, which tells us that it is ongoing. He's continually guarding us, continually protecting us. God's power, it's not a result of our faith, as some scholars want to argue. Rather, I think the, the Net Bible renders this very well. It's through your faith that, that he guards it's a better rendering. It, we also seen the same construction in verse three through the resurrection, so it fits with those with the context as well. But how how does God safeguard? How does He protect our inheritance that we have been lavished for those who put their faith in Him? Well, one thing for certain, it's not exempting us from suffering. <laughs> You think, thanks, Hoffman. It's like, came in the morning for you to tell me that one. Yeah, and, and Peter's going to remind us that here in a, in, a, in a jiffy as we get to the text. But how does he protect? Let me give you three ways. One, it's through the Father who lavishes his gifts on us, his provisions, as we see here even in the text as it's highlighted. Not only the Father's provisions, but the role of the Son. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weakness, but one has been tempted in every way we are yet without sin. See, the Father, the Son, and yet you got it, the Holy Spirit as well. He is the power which 
has sealed the deal. He is that which has our down payment, as Paul writes about elsewhere. It's a guarantee of the inheritance that we are going to receive. And so he says to these believers, hey, take heart. No wonder he then breaks out in song in verse 6 when he says, this brings you great joy. What is this? It's not just the salvation because they don't match in the gender in the Greek. (laughs) So it can't be just the salvation. It can't be the father. That's so far away. No, no. I think it's all of verses 3 through 5. In other words, this new birth that you have into a living hope, the inheritance, all of this, verse 6, brings us great joy. Now, if that doesn't make your socks roll up and down, I don't know what does. There should be a hearty amen. I, to think this is our joy of our salvation. It's what David talked about in Psalm 51. Restore to me, after had committing sin, he says, restore to me, what? The joy of my salvation. Uh, later, Luke 1, uh, Mary, in what we call the Magnificat, as she rejoices that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, she, gets, she says, this brings joy to, that, to, to know that I, I'm involved with bringing God, my Savior, into this world. They're tied together. And that leads us into the latter part of 6, all the way through 9, dealing with the joy of our salvation. The first point there in your notes is that a joyful, our salvation provides a joyful understanding of the nature of our sufferings. Notice what Peter states, although you may have to suffer for a short time, it begins with something that's, it's not causal, uh, but it is concessive. This is, this is going to happen. It's going to take place. And we're dealing with suffering. We're not talking about, oh, you know, just a little slap on the wrist. <laughs> one, one commentator states, suffering is still painful or it would not be described as suffering. And what might surprise you is that in this little epistle, 16 times Peter is going to refer to suffering. It's, again, it, 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 we, we don't have to know the situation. We can piece it together from this letter to know this group is undergoing a ton. And what an appropriate book for us to read as believers living in the day in which we are. A joyful understanding of the nature of the sufferings. Notice what Peter says about the sufferings. He said they're periodical. They're, notice, he says, and they are brief. Now, I think the context here is, is brief could be a lifetime because he's talking about all of eternity, it's short in the grand scheme of things. I love this quote from Thomas Brooks, the Puritan. He said, a Christian knows that death shall be the funeral of all his or her sins, his sorrows, his afflictions, his temptations, his vexations, his oppressions, his persecution. He knows that death shall be the resurrection of all his hopes, his joys, his delights, his comforts, his contentments. Isn't that great? (laughs) In the midst of the suffering, they're brief in the grand scheme of things. And Peter says also they come in various shapes and forms. It's not one size fits all. I think that's another reason why we have the body of Christ. Areas we can empathize, sometimes we can just sympathize, but together we go through these valleys 
as a body of believers. The rendering in the net, and I normally like the net English rendering. I don't like it here. <laughs> the ESV says doesn't say may here. Such that this brings you great joy. Though you may have to suffer is the net. The ESV says it is necessary. The NIV says you had to. It's a better rendering. It's a little more uncomfortable, isn't it, though, to say the suffering is because God allows it. It's part of his plan. Now, hear me out. <laughs> this is not minimizing evil actions which inflict suffering or the effects of a sin-tainted world. We're not saying that. But God is working out his plan even in the midst of the crud in which we live in. You say, well, what basis do you have for that claim? Romans 8. Which is often used as a band-aid because they don't get to the second verse. What do I mean? Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And everyone goes, oh, yay. Paul's not saying suffering isn't painful. And, and, and why is it all things work together for good? It's the next verse so that you can be conformed to the image of his son. That's why it's good, not the suffering. And Peter says in the midst of these sufferings, God has maneuvered in it for his glory. Look at the cross. First Peter two, later Peter is gonna take us to the cross, so I'm kind of showing you what's ahead. Just close your ears if you don't want to hear. But 1 Peter 2, 21 says, For this to you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. <laughs> Joy in the midst of suffering? Mm -hmm. Because it's brief. It comes in various forms, yes. But it's necessary. <laughs> God's using it. And that leads us to the verse 7, and that is that the suffering gives us an opportunity for the refinement of our faith. Notice what it says in 7. Such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold. That is a statement. That is the most precious metal in the first century. Uh, they didn't have platinum, or I don't know. Gold, gold was hit. This is the end all. The gold that is tested by fire, even though it's passing away. I think about the believers who were imprisoned in Acts 5, and what do they say? They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the Lord's name. Wow. How can they say that suffering was great? Because they got to glorify him, and it refined their faith. Pastor Martin Niemöller was arrested on June the 27th, 1937. Ironically, he was part of the Nazi party. He served as a submarine commander, but he was also a pastor. And he started to see the problems with the Nazi regime. So he was arrested, later Bonhoeffer. But Niemöller stated this to the church the day he's arrested. He says, there is indeed no hope except to hold firm to the crucified one and to learn to say in simple and therefore certain faith in the bottom of my heart his name and the cross alone shine forth at all times in all hours. Wow. 
It's not 10 karat gold. It's not 18 karat. It's not even 24 karat. He says, this is better than any gold. And that is the refinement of your faith. No metal compares. It's also a reminder, by the way, like the readers, we are sojourners on this globe. There is nothing this earth can give us <laughs> that will outshine, outlast. I mean, what else is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? Nothing. Not your 401, right? <laughs> Not your collection of, I don't know, books, I don't know, whatever. Nothing outlasts this, your Starbucks card, I don't know. This is far more glorious. That's why in Isaiah 48, God says, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction because we are seeking something far greater, that which our treasure in heaven, no moth can devour, <laughs> no thief can break in. It's ours. And so the sufferings, yeah, they stink. But in the process, it's refining our faith. And that is glorious. It's joyful. And that leads us to the last part of verse 7. We'll bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We need to be careful that our sufferings don't strip our opportunity to bring glory to God. C.H. Spurgeon said, time is short, eternity is long. It's only reasonable that this short life be lived in the light of eternity. He's right. 70, 80, 90, 110, it's still short in the grand scheme of what God has. And so the joy comes in knowing there's an opportunity to give praise, glory, and honor to Christ when he's revealed. And that fits in with eight and nine, and I just love where Peter's going with this. He says, and you have not seen him, which tells us, yes, these are believers scattered in modern Turkey. They weren't there in Israel when Jesus was walking the earth. They didn't have the privilege of taking of the, the multiplication of the bread and the wine. They didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't participate in any of that. They came to know Christ because someone told them. And what did Jesus say in John 20? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. What an encouragement to these listeners. And, the, and he says, you, you don't see him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him, and so you rejoice. Wow. These believers, again, they're not living in that region, and yet they've placed their faith. This is they believe or trusted. It, 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 their confidence has been placed in. And he uses a, pron or a preposition with this in the Greek, which is so strong, because what he's saying is you've carried a sense of, of belonging into this. You've grasped it with both arms tightly. And it's even further highlighted by saying, and you love him. It's ongoing. This, this devotion to the Lord. And in the midst of the suffering, you can't wait to see him. Years ago, I had an opportunity to be a camp counselor. That's not one of those things you put down on a resume, but I had that opportunity, right? I lost five years of my life in one summer, but there you are. <laughs> if you've done it, you know what I mean. And you know, inevitable Johnny or Susie stubs a toe or gets stung by a bee. And the first words out of their mouth are always, I want to go home. Hmm. I want to go home. 
For me to live as Christ, Paul says, to die is what? Gain. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. I long to see it. I rejoice. And Paul, or Peter, <laughs> bookends this section with joy. He starts with joy in verse th- th- 4, and he ends with joy here in verse 8. In fact, he repeats it. Rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. It's with joy. It, it, and it's passive, which tells us it's God who's infused it in this process. No trial or suffering can ever begin to eclipse the joy that awaits a believer. No greater thrill or pleasure can this world offer that would outshine, outdo the joy that we find in the Lord. That's why we're not dashed to pieces or hopeless. Oh, I know. You look at the news, it's, it's discouraging. Someone, two people shared that with me this morning. Yeah. Or the news that the MRI this week didn't look too good and they need to do further tests. Or the news you have ALL. The list goes on. What do you do with this? We have a hope. It's rooted in the Lord. Is it not? In the presence of God's love and his joy. Why rejoice? Peter tells us, look at the last part. Because, verse 9, you are attaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is why we're filled with love and joy for Jesus. We're obtaining it. This, it's, it's an ex, this experience, it's ongoing. Again, our salvation is already right now to be revealed Nothing needs to be added to it. That's not what Peter's saying. We've been set free if we've placed our faith in Christ and recognized our sin from the final consequences of that distress and anguish which comes at judgment. No, what Peter's talking about is when Christ rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the power, everything required to get men out of their, their sin has been accomplished. But the message of the servant of this parable, this this letter is telling us there's a day coming when we'll see the full ramifications, the culmination of all that awaits. That's why we can sing in the darkest hour, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attaineth my way, when sorrows like sea bellows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. (laughs) So what do we do with 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9? Let me give you three points there in your notes. The first of these is our glorious salvation must be central in our lives. The theological truths of the gospel need to just ooze out of our very pores. I had a friend who years ago sold Shackley. Now, there's nothing wrong with Shackley, so let me just say that. You know, works for a lot of people, I guess. But... For him, it was all-encompassing. I, I mean, he lived Shackley. He breathed Shackley. He based his health, he, his economic success. Everything was on Shackley. That needs to be how we are with the gospel. Is it not? I mean, how do we know if the gospel is central in our lives? How do we know if it's, it's all-consuming? Well, let me give you some questions. When is the last time you shared the gospel? If it's so great, so glorious... You're so joyful about it. 
When's the last time you shared it? When is the last time you reflected on the joy, hope, grace, peace that comes because you're a child of God? How much of your time this last week was spent in light of the transformation of the gospel in your life? In other words, when have you been around believers, involved in discipleship, assisting at the church, and balancing your checkbook this past month? How much was allocated to the gospel? In when temptation has come this past week, did you put it in check because of the recognition of the incredible gift of salvation the Lord has lavished on you? These are some important questions to ask because the gospel should be oozing from our very pores. And that is what Peter is trying to say to his readers. Even in the suffering, even in the crud of life, look at our salvation. This is what should be on the forefront. And that leads us to the second point. Our glorious salvation reminds us that no, what, no matter what circumstance of life arises, our, our joy should not be tempered or eliminated. We are not part of the frozen chosen. You've heard that line before, right? Uh, Jerry Bridges writes, the purpose of rejoicing is not so we can feel better emotionally, though that will happen. The purpose of joy is to glorify God by demonstrating to an unbelieving world that our loving and faithful Heavenly Father cares for us and provides us with all that we need. That's why in James 1, the writer can state, count it all joy, my brothers, when you have a bowl of ice cream, when there is no cat within 20 miles of your home. No. He's saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and steadfastness has its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wow. That's what it's Peter's echoing here, the very thing James says in chapter one. When times of despair, hopelessness, and powerlessness arise, joy comes out like the sun. Or it should. Because we have the privilege of knowing what the Lord has done, what he can do, and what he will do. Psalm 92, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Isn't that great? And finally, our glorious salvation guarantees, and here it is, the beautiful promise of eternal life. <laughs> A biblical theology of joy tells us the better is yet to come. J.I. Packer states, hearts on earth may say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end but in, invariably it does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. <laughs> Isn't that great? First John 3, see what sort of love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children, and indeed we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that whenever it is revealed, we will be like him. Wow. Because we will see him just as he is. 
You don't see him now, but you love him. And you press forward knowing there's a day coming for those of us who know Christ as our Savior that we will attain the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Father, thank you for these sweet words penned by the Apostle Peter. Oh, he knew full well about suffering. He'd been incarcerated more than once. In fact, this letter is being penned from Rome in prison where eventually he will be crucified upside down. But like the believers in Acts 5, they rejoice because they have the opportunity to suffer and that so doing they can exalt your name. And Father, may that be our prayer as well. Life is hard. Satan's working overtime. Sin has plagued this globe and we have a world that's hostile to you and to all of those who claim your name. And yet, in the midst of it, it is an opportunity to refine our faith, watch you work, and eventually attain the goal of our salvation and cash in on that inheritance the beautiful inheritance that you keep for us. Lord, we thank you. We rejoice in the resurrection of your Son, our Savior Jesus, in whose name we